Welcome to another edition of the Beervana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. As you might be able to hear, this is a special edition of the Beervana Podcast. <laughs> I love this ambient sound. Nice, nice production work there. Uh, yeah, well, in the past we've had ambient brewery sounds, uh, thinking all the way back to Breakside. Now we're actually, if you can't tell, in a brew pub itself. Uh, we are at the Hopworks Urban Brewery uh, in Portland, Oregon, in the southeast uh, of Portland, Oregon. Um, and we'll get to why we're here in a minute. But uh, you're hearing the, the hustle and bustle of lunch hour at uh, Friday afternoon Hopworks. Which, since everybody leaves work at 2 anyway, these, are pro- these people probably are not going back to work. I was going to say, this is Portland, Oregon, yeah. The, the working day is done. Come That's on. Right. <laughs> it's it's one twenty in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and since um, we're known for our weather uh, reports, it's uh, not half bad out there. So, yeah, nice afternoon for a for a beer. Okay, so this is the Beer Vana podcast. As always, uh, with me is Jeff Allworth, author of Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and Cider Main Simple. And you can find him blogging at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. And you can find him tweeting at Beeronomics. Uh, so. Why are we here at Hopworks Urban Brewery? Well, we've talked uh, many times uh, here and there about packaging, uh, admitting our lack of in-depth knowledge, or even surface knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've discussed the differences between fill lines and bottles and uh, how cans uh, work. So we decided to come to uh, a place that has their own, actually, uh, bottling and canning line and uh, discuss uh, the ins and outs of, of canning and bottling beer. That's right. We spoke to Trevor Bass, who is the uh, head brewer here. He sort of oversees brewing operations. And he w- walked us over to their packaging line and gave us some, gave us the deep dive on, on canning and, and packaging and a lot of fascinating stuff there. Yeah, so uh, we will get to that uh, interview in a little bit. But of course, as always, before we do that, we have to give you the news. Last week, a local Portland brewery went public with a dispute they'd had with the city over the trademark of a leaping stag. Uh, Here in Portland, we uh, have this famous sign in part of uh, Old Town, which overlooks the Burnside Bridge. And Old Town Brewing, five years ago, trademarked that uh, leaping stag, which they now use as part of their... Packaging everything—it's a big part of their identity. Yeah, it's a big lighted sign that's become kind of a symbol of uh, of Portland. Right. In fact, it used to be a private advertisement, but years ago the city of Portland bought it, uh, changed the the writing on it to Portland, Oregon, and it's got this famous stag that go, goes all the way back to a sportswear company or something. So, right, white stag, white stag, and um, we learned this week or last week that. Uh, the city has been trying to get a trademark on the sign, which includes the white stag, so that they can license that sign to Maker's Mark and Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, on, pro- on beer-related, beer and alcohol-related pro- uh, products here. And they're fighting with this local brewery to get that trademark, and it's created quite a stink. Yeah, and the local brewery has had this trademark for years, uh, long enough that it's considered uncontestable, right? right. Incontestable? In, yeah. Incontestable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they've got it. They've got the trademark, and they what they serve is beer. So to use the white stag on beer is theirs. That's right, and it's it is. In, I mean, leave aside the legal jargon, it is basically incontestable. They've done a great job of defending their mark. Um, it's been and in constant city, use. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the city has not a leg to stand on. Uh, but this, but the, it's a small brewery. It's a, it's a brew pub um, in northeast Portland. And they don't have a ton of money. So they've been, you know, tens of thousands of dollars later still right. trying to defend this thing. And, it, and the city's plan clearly is just to bury them in legal fees until they abandon the mark. Right. And, um, that's created a, a stir here in Portland. Right. Oregon. And the city has, has lawyers on, on salary that can just sit around and uh, keep... Litigating this, the, the um, yeah, the the main takeaway for me is just how tone deaf the city is about this. Yeah, but one I can't imagine uh, that it would be a big deal. I mean, if they're going to license this trademark for Maker's Mark and, and AB InBev, um, it's going to be for a local 
local market anyway. Right, of course. And 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 Portland's all about Birvana. It's craft beer. So I know. it's just it's just inconceivable that they're doing this. It really is just goes. It's just amazing, given how much craft beer is associated with the city and how much money the craft breweries bring in to the city of Portland. Yeah, it's like crazy and that not you just, would mess and, with that. Yeah, and not just direct money that they bring in. Uh, tax revenue and stuff, but the indirect money from all of the, the people who come here precisely because it's a craft beer mecca. So. Totally. Uh, shame ooh, on you. Yeah, shame on you, City of Portland. That's, that's disappointing. The, we have an interesting uh, government structure here, and uh, different city council people oversee different departments, and this is actually overseen by the mayor, Ted Wheeler. So, Ted, uh, we're asking you, call off your dogs, man. Ted, we demand. We demand it. We demand it. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, also in, in hyper-local news, sorry, we try not to be too local, but this was an interesting story. So uh, on Sunday, the Craft Brew Alliance announced that they were going to begin remodeling the pub uh, in the Widmer Brewery uh, the next day and turn it into a tap room to feature beer made on their 10-barrel innovation brewery. So just some context, what they've had is something they call the Gast House, which is a full restaurant uh, where you can get uh, regular Woodmer beers and also beers from this 10-barrel innovation brewery on tap. Right. They've had these weird beers there for years now, Ten, uh, 20 taps of uh, obscure, interesting, unusual beer that you can't get anywhere else except that room. Yeah, and their brewery is, uh, the old brewery building is a pretty cool old historic building. It's in an uh, interesting part of town. Um, and uh, it's always been a cool space. So really the story is simply that they're remodeling and removing the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, and that leads to a sort of a big question, why? You'd think that a tap room was something you would do when you don't have money for a full-service kitchen, and if you did, that you'd want to do that, although there are some local examples of breweries who are just not interested in, in getting into the brew pub business because yeah. it's a whole different thing to manage. But this is a big company. They've had this restaurant going for a while. Presumably they can staff it with, with competent people and let it run. I would think so. I mean, the one thing that came to my mind when I heard this news was that w within beer right now, when you read the beer press, uh, beer business press, this word tap room is always uttered with almost like an incantation of success. Everybody is talking about how tap room sales are really, really, really on the rise. And uh. It's the exciting, interesting part of uh, the growth in the craft uh, sector. So it, it just made me wonder, did they somehow think that a cra you know, tap room was going to excite people or I, I don't know I mean this is Portland so I can't imagine that was their thinking but I don't know it's weird it, I can't think of any other I mean it surely uh, it surely couldn't have been unprofitable for so long that it was such a big I mean this is a multi-million dollar company I don't yeah, know it's, it's not a weird. decision made in haste it's got to be a fairly small part of the of the bottom line for them the overall spreadsheet probably doesn't um, uh, has a big dent in the spreadsheet, so it's just an interesting, an interesting business decision to to move away from a restaurant and just into a tap room model. And yeah. it's also been interesting the the response, which is there's been a lot of sort of consternation, uh, uh, which is also interesting, curious. Uh, consternation from the from the beer geeks. It's not surprising to me at all. No, why not? We're concerned about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not not a not a pin drops without us getting con concerned about it. Yeah, I'll I'll say that it's it's out of the way enough that it's kind of a destination. You go there on purpose. You don't yeah. just kind of wander by. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a question for me. Are people gonna make that trek uh, just to go drink beer rather than go and have a meal? Yeah. And it seemed to me that the times I've been there actually have been um, during sort of business lunch hours where it seems. It's, it's doing great business with business people, so. Yeah, well, I, I'm currently working on a project for Widmer, uh, writing Robin Kurt's biography, and so I've actually been to the brewery more often than I have over the last years, more often than I had previously, and I, the pub always seemed to be successful to me. I mean, it had people yeah. in it. I don't know. So, But I, we, we're not looking at the books. We don't know anything, and yep. the brewery's not saying anything, so. Well, maybe one day you'll, uh, you'll find out why they... That's a good idea. Or maybe we'll find out whether it was a good idea or not. That's right. 
Okay. All right, finally, uh, we learned that breweries have managed to get some language into the new tax bill working its way through Congress. This is uh, very, this is happening this week. Um, passed by of, Congress. Now. Yeah, well, passed by the House. Uh, the Senate still has yet to. But this is, the, is this the House version that it's in? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not okay. sure which, which version it's in. Um, these are going to go to reconciliation. So, right. I, actually, I think it's in the Senate side. Oh, okay. Because I know that Ron Wyden, our senator, is one of three guys who is really pushing this, this, this language. So... Uh, anyway, the uh, the 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 rule uh, would be that the new the new rule would be that breweries that make less than two million barrels a year would see their excise tax cut from uh, seven dollars to three dollars and fifty dollars on the first sixty thousand barrels they make. Uh-huh. So it, that so it's kind of complex, but um, first sixty thousand barrels. Uh, right now, if you're if you're, it's the microbrewery thing. You're only uh, the regular excise tax is eighteen dollars on a barrel of beer, but for, for breweries under sixty thousand, it's seven. They're going to cut that in half uh, on those first sixty thousand barrels if breweries are less than two million uh, barrels big. Uh, barrels big. Uh-huh. Uh, bigger breweries would get um, a little bit of a break with their taxes declining from sixteen to from two sixteen from eighteen dollars. Uh, on the first six million barrels that they make, so they get a little bit of a break. But it's clearly aimed at uh, fostering uh, the smaller breweries. So yeah. re- relative to the big breweries, you're talking about uh, less than a quarter of the, the excise tax. So that'd be a, a big boon to smaller breweries. It would, and if you combine that with the tax break that you'll get for owning a private aircraft, I mean, which of course you know. <laughs> These private jets are all the rage among the craft beer brewers, the brew beer owners. That's they, right. They're jetting around all the place. So, you know, it's like a double bonus. That, that tax bill uh, has not been notably um, aimed at small business. <laughs> yeah. I think your, uh, your tart content yeah. surfaced that, uh, that point. Yeah. So, all right. but, but that would, if you're feeling very bad about the tax bill, uh, and you like small breweries, that would be at least one nice thing that would happen. That's right. Yeah. So let's hope that uh, whatever happens, reconciliation, or whatever happens to the tax bill, that all of it, that, that stays. And this is, uh, people often wonder what the Brewers Association does with their time. This is something that they've been working on for years. Uh, this is exactly the kind of thing trade organizations exist to do. And this is the fruit of their many years of lobbying Congress. There are now 55 senators who back the language in this bill. So it, it's going to easily pass. And that includes a bipartisan group. So Yeah, it makes a good. It makes for good PR. Sure. And every, talk about small business, talk about beer. Everyone loves it. Yeah, and every single state has small breweries. So every this is not one of those pork things. It's going to benefit every state. Um, certainly some more than others. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a win-win. This is the kind of stuff that used to happen just uniformly. Uh, Patrick's wondering if we should do our tasting now or after we... Or a little of both. Oh, a little of both. <laughs> so uh, in front of us are uh, a couple of um, Hopworks beers. Uh, before we get into the interview with um, uh, Trevor Bass. Trevor Bass, thank you very much for rescuing me there. Yes. Uh, uh, we have uh, a couple of beers we might taste first, and then he's going to bring us a very special beer that we can uh, taste. Yeah, so uh, Hopworks did us something very fascinating uh, about a month ago, maybe longer. Time is elusive to me, but um, they are a 10-year-old brewery, and they launched their brewery on the, uh, the strength of an IPA. So That's they right. were one of the first. This is... Uh, 2007 when IPAs are becoming um, the kind of starting to become the king and they were certainly the king here and so when Hopworks launched uh, they had this IPA that was their flagship and it has been their flagship all along and then this year they decided to change the recipe they're not going to change the name Uh, they are changing the packaging but this is not a one-off this is actually replacing their flagship IPA with an entirely new recipe yeah and it's not I was going to say it's not just a little tweak of of an old recipe this is this is a brand new super modern IPA uh, to replace what was now and it sort of it speaks to the rapid uh, 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 progression or change at least uh, in modern IPAs um, or how, how quickly modern IPAs have evolved I guess that's what really the evolution of modern IPAs so it has evolved so much since what t- 2007 roughly right. that um, that it's time to, to bring out something new and I think actually I just wanted to say a couple things to set set the, the scene for those who don't know so Hopworks Urban Brewery was actually one of the um, uh, sort of at the beginning of what I would consider a rapid expansion in craft beer uh, the 
founder and owner, Christian Edinger, was a, was a, uh, a well-known brewer in town, brewing for Laurel Wood. Am I correct with that? Um, uh, I'm, pouring, I'm pouring and nodding. Yeah. Uh, uh, he found this fantastic space in southeast Portland, sort of old industrial space, um, which he's been very fortunate. They've been able to expand to almost double the size uh, uh, in the same location. Um, and it was a super big hit. Uh, from the from the beginning, and, and two big big parts of his business model were one, he was going to be all organic before that was a really big thing, and while it was still probably really hard to source organic ingredients, yeah. uh, or at least as organic as it could be, um, and he's still they're still very uh, environmentally uh, conscious and focused, as as you'll hear in the interview. Um, and the second was he, he created this, he called an urban brewery, he created this sort of vibe here, this uh, biking, organic sort of Portland vibe that sort of persisted. It was a very popular place and remained so. It was a very, uh, the, the branding, the conceit of the brewery was very consistent with what Portland was. It's uh, the, the urban biking thing, uh, the warehouse approach, everything about it is very Portlandy. So it's unsurprisingly become one of the, uh, the most popular and successful Portland breweries. I think they make something around 14,000, 15,000 barrels of beer. Uh, they now do packaging, but they have a couple of pubs in town and sell a lot of beer on draft, too. Yeah. All right, so let's, uh, uh, let's start with the original. Yeah, so one thing that's really fascinating about this is a little... Th- this one is... Uh, the original that we have, they don't have a ton of it left, and uh, it's settled out a little bit, because so, I think it's not quite as fresh as you'd get um, if they'd continued to make it. Um, it's almost all cycled out now, but they had a bottle for us to sample. But uh, it is actually cloudier than the new one, which is a fascinating uh, uh, thing. And it, it's a if we Patrick's looking at it, they look fairly similar now. Yep. But, but originally they were. Um, yep. I got to see, a month ago uh, when they when we did these and we poured this out. It hadn't settled out as much, and it was quite a bit cloudier. That is alone fascinating. That the new beer is less cloudy than the old beer. Yeah. So I I, I, uh, I take a good whiff of this, and it immediately strikes me as. Old school. Yeah, totally. You smell caramel, caramel malt, piney. Caramel malt, pine notes, yeah. yeah. You can't actually smell bitterness, but there's something in bitterness that um, alerts the nose. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's a quality of the aroma, and you can you can smell that, that there is, I don't know, There's you get a, a premonition of bitterness to come when you mm-hmm. smell this. Mm. So yeah, I would call it a classic, a very well executed classic IPA. A lot of cascades. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones that has a lot of full body, a lot of caramel malt, and so it's got a lot of bitterness to balance those out. The, the balance point is is you know got all these heavy notes. So it's got heavy bitterness, heavy uh, caramel malt, yep, and thick, and you know it's it's this it's ten years ago, people were still making. Uh, beers with a lot of flavor impact. They wanted them to be really booming. Yeah, and so we're getting that in this beer. Yeah. All right. yeah. Now let's try so the new. Now one. let's try it. Let's let's zap ten years into the future. Future. <laughs> All right. Your, I, your dadism. <laughs> you have aggressive dadism. I like it. Okay. So yeah, immediately on the nose, this is a modern IPA, citrusy. Very fruity, fruity, like almost sweet. You don't, you don't smell caramel at all. Yeah, I think they got rid of the the caramel malt altogether, or really reduced it, and didn't want, did not want a lot of caramel in the palate. Yeah. Oh yeah, drinks entirely differently. Drinks entirely modern, so the the body is very light. Yeah. Uh, it's not getting in the way of the really bright, but not overly bitter hop notes, which yeah. are citrus and they're they're uh whereas the old one was the citrus citrus piney classic northwest this has much more of the modern hopping palette with uh, all the tropical fruits yeah a little south pacific in there yeah a little little uh peach apricot tropical fruit south pacific all that stuff that we like now in a modern ipa wow this is really good the new one I mean, both are really good, but it is really good, and I haven't had the new one yet, so this is my first time. Yeah, exactly. The first when I sat down with these guys and tasted them, my reaction was, "Oh, the fir- the new one's way better." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
uh, it's not that the bad one's old. It's just that we've uh, we've all evolved, right? Yeah. And uh, when we want an IPA, we're looking for something that's got these characteristics. We now kind of and it's kind of a shame that the old one's just going away entirely because it'd be great to be able to come here and just have them just like we're doing side by side. And you can see ten years of of, of sort of craft beer. I mean. I'll, it's specific to IPA, but it's also sort of craft beer evolution, just how much we've evolved, how much we've learned about how to use hops and balance and flavoring. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 I actually like the old one, and I would like... There are times when I'm in the mood for that. It's yeah. kind of... When I drank it before, I thought, you know, that seems like a winter IPA or something. It's like hardier, and, you know, if it was in the deep, dark reaches of winter, I might like an IPA like yeah. that. Well, they they also they, they still make their abominable, yeah. which is a kind of similar the wintry IPA, which is phenomenal. It's my favorite of their beers. Yeah, it was the favorite. I the new yeah that, that's true. I, I like this one. I might update, but this is no, uh, this is a really nice beer. All right. Uh, well, with that as an intro, then uh, we will continue to uh, to sit here and drink beers while uh, we let you listen to our interview. So uh, here we go. Okay, uh, we are here in the Hopworks Urban Brewing facility. Uh, I'm here with Patrick and Trevor Bass, who is the head brewer here at Hopworks. And we are in standing in front of, uh, well, I guess it's a, a canning line, is that right? It's a canning line and everything that comes with that. Okay, so we, as you all know, we've talked about uh, canning lines in the past and expressed our ignorance uh, or demonstrated our ignorance about how they work so why don't we have trevor begin by just walking us through uh how canning lines work uh and we'll ask questions as we go along and then we'll get into some more of the technical aspects down the line but let's get an overview first all right trevor take it away sure so um it starts with cans we order uh approximately 25 pallets of cans um Per order from, in our case, uh, Ball Manufacturing, they make uh, glass jars and a variety of other things, but they also make uh, millions and millions of cans for a variety of different um, outputs, whether it's soda or beer or otherwise. Uh, And we get those, they arrive to us in a uh, clean um, fashion, stacked in uh, many thousands of cans per pallet. Uh, we load those pallets into our depalletizer. It looks sort of like a big acrylic box, um, and we have a lift on the bottom of that that uh, is able to bring the cans or the pallet up uh, one layer at a time. Um, it uses lasers to sort of sight across the top and know when uh, the, the top layer is empty and it's ready to move up one, one layer at a time. Um, that is, I feel like we should be walking around. Um, yeah, let's walk around. Okay. So while we're walking around, let me just ask you a couple quick questions. They're clean, meaning you can fill them straight with beer without having to rinse or anything? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of go through that. We, we do some, um, some precautionary measures. Uh, so the pallet gets loaded into the machine, um, gets lift, uh, lifted into our depalletizing table. There's a sweep arm that pushes the cans off of the pallet that they came in on onto... Um, aligned to, to move them from a big mass uh, that is sort of a 40 by 48 layer into a single line so they're ready to go into the filling machine. Um, as they sort of move into that single line, uh, they go through our rinser where we use uh, sterile filtered water to, uh, the cans are inverted, um, they're jetted with water to rinse out anything that shouldn't be in there but maybe we just uh, take a precautionary measure there. And then the water drains and they're brought right side up again, um, open end up. Uh, from there they go into our filler, which is a, which is a Comac, it's a, an Italian filling line. Um, and they move around, it's a, it's a rotary filler, so they get sort of spaced out so that they get put under a head. Ours has only eight, it's a, one of the smaller rotary lines out there. Um, and as they move through the rotation, they go through a purge cycle where the cans are purged with CO2. We want to push out all of the air. Uh, the oxygen creates big problems down the road if that's not done properly. 
So we want to purge out all of the air with CO2. Um, the cans are then pressurized to uh, the ambient temperature of the, the filler, or the ambient pressure of the filler, which um, depends on the temperature of the beer, the carbonation level, and a few other things. But typically it tends to be between uh, 10 and 20 PSI, depending on what we're packaging. Okay, how do you, I don't, I, I've all, if the can doesn't have a lid on, right? Right. So how do you pressurize a can that's wide open like that? Good question. I would have just kept on moving. Um, so what happens is uh, the the base of the can, the bottom of the can, sits on um, basically a round, lazy Susan of a table. And in the center of that is the the um, the rotating mechanism that's it's called the filler bowl. And, uh, and then all of the heads that line up with the tops of the cans. So... Um, as the cans move in the rotation to be purged and filled and depressurized, uh, they get lined up in their, their particular spot, and a head drops down out of that filler bowl and mates up with the top of the open can um, and creates a seal just through uh, pressure and a gasket. And then from there, the process starts as it moves sort of uh, clockwise in rotation around uh, the, the different... Uh, positions of the filling and uh, purging and filling cycle. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And then and then what happens? Um, so the can gets uh, purged. It gets pressurized to the ambient uh, pressure of the filler bowl. And uh, once it's pressurized, what we can do is uh, fill the can um, via a small amount of pressure, but largely gravity, uh, without creating um, a lot of foam. Um, because it's a, the pressure is equalized between the inside of the can and the inside of the filler bowl, uh, the, the carbon dioxide wants to stay in solution. Um, and so what we have is a minimum amount of foam that is created in the filling process. Uh, as the can rotates around the, the stages of the filler bowl, um, once, it's, once the can is filled, um, the filling cycle is over and we have to depressurize the can gently so we don't create sort of the idea of a shaken can that you open suddenly. So it um, depressurizes gently and then the filler head lifts off the can and the can is delivered back to uh, the conveyor line. Um, and from there, it moves through into the, the lidding, um, where the, the top of the can, the, the lid that has the tab and the opening, um, gets dropped in onto the top of the can. Um, and that is seamed in place. Uh, I like to describe what's happening as um, the, the crimp or the closure on that can with the end and the can itself, the can body, um, sort of they get what is the equivalent of a roll top dry bag, but um, all the way around the top of the can. So it gets um, a fold of the two pieces of aluminum, the, the can end and the body itself get rolled around each other a couple times, mm -hmm. and then they get crimped in place so that they mate. Um, there's also a food grade adhesive uh, that is pressed into the can end itself before it's, uh, before it's delivered to us. Um, and that lines up with the top of the can. So as it gets rolled and crimped in place, there's a little bit of extra seal that's there. Um, and then it uh, spins around very fast as that, that process is happening. Um, and then it leaves the, the can filling and seaming uh, process. Uh, from there, and from there, you know, every brewery is a little bit different, but largely they need to get the can clean and prepared for people to drink it. So. Um, what happens is between the filling process and the seaming process, we look for um, a small amount of foam to come up and spill over the top of the can. And ideally, we're getting a really nice pillow of foam uh, without, without too much foam being created. Um, but we definitely want it to be above the surf surface of the open can. Um, and then the lid displaces that foam uh, a little bit. So we have, theoretically, when the lid hits the can and is seamed, um, it's only beer foam that's in the headspace of that can. Um, and and you, you squirt it? Is that, how do you get the foam to come up? The foam, uh, actually on this line, just happens um, sort of, we tune it with the fill speed uh, and the pressure of, of the, the filler bowl itself. And we can control those things uh, via a touchscreen computer. 
um, and our, our just CO2 inlet on our source tank, our bright tank. Um, so we'll fill with a speed that as the can depressurizes from the filler bowl sequence, um, it's going to create a tiny bit of foam that creates that pillow. Um, so as it moves from the filler to the, the seaming mechanism, uh, we're looking for that little pillow of foam. We're looking to displace any um, open space in the can with beer foam, which inside of every beer bubble should be CO2 and nothing else. And that's, so that's why we're looking for that foam. Um, and then it gets seamed. And uh, then we've got a foamy can that had a little bit of foam spill over the side. So uh, after the lid is in place, it, leaves the, it enters the regular conveyance. The can gets rinsed. Um, in our case, we like to reuse the sterile water, water the, um, that we put on the inside of the can, uh, and we recapture that, and we pump it over, and we, we use it as a shower to blast the outside of the can. So we effectively um, half the amount of water that we use for the uh, rinsing of the interior and exterior of the can that we would otherwise. Um, once the can's rinsed, it gets inverted. Uh, we use a, um, an inkjet that blasts the batch number, uh, the day it was filled, and uh, sometimes a special message if it's a different can. Um, and jets that on the bottom of the can, it prints it as it passes through. From there it gets flipped right side up again, where it goes through. Um, for us, it's a machine that has an x-ray, uh, and it has a tiny little beam that goes across the can at a specific height. Uh, which we set for different size cans. We do 12 and 16 ounce here at Hopworks. Um, and at that point, uh, the beam goes across. If it senses, um, if it catches that there's liquid there, nothing happens. If it uh, catches that there's no liquid there, it's either uh, foam or something less dense than, than liquid, like air or gas, um, then it triggers a sensor and uh, it'll kick that can off the line, indicating that it was potentially a low fill, um, where there's not as much beer beer in the can as we say there is on the package. Therefore, it's illegal for us to sell, and we don't send it out. Um, and we get to drink that here at the brewery. <laughs> um, and then from there, uh, what happens is, if it didn't get kicked out, it goes down to um, our uh, four or six packer, depending on the package size. Um, and it's called a, a pack tech. They make a variety of different machines that um, put, they're called handles on the top of those cans. Um, they snap into place via mechanical action and um, they spit out the other side of that conveyor and they get loaded into cardboard trays and loaded onto pallets and onto trucks. So going back to that laser. Yeah, <laughs> the x-ray beam. The x-ray beam. Yeah. How does it, uh, it it, it's not seeing. So how, do you know how that works? How does it know it's on the other side of metal? It um, there is a there's a X-ray and then there is a sensor on the other side of that. Um, and the the way that that works is it's it's the the sensor sort of measures the amount of beam that hits it that and that gets through. And so we know it's going to go through two walls of aluminum plus um, either gas or liquid and it'll, there'll be sort of a difference in the receiver on uh, how much hits, how much of that, that ray hits that receiver. And if uh, it's too much, then there was gas there. And if there's the right amount, then it was liquid. Pretty cool. Pretty straightforward. It's very safe also. One thing you didn't mention was labeling. I assume you get your cans pre-printed? We do. So when we order them from Ball, um, we order them uh, printed. And so we have, depending on the brand, um, typically about 25 pallets of uh, cans printed at a time. That's sort of their minimum order, 12 to 24 pallets. Um, if it's core brand for us, we just order 25 because it's a, just a touch cheaper that way and we know we're gonna fill them eventually. Um, if it's a seasonal, sometimes we'll do a half, half order just to see kind of the velocity of that. But um, they come to us, they come to us printed by ball um, for a couple can releases now, we've done labeled cans where we actually uh, fill blank cans or brights and then we run them through our bottling line uh, with our bottling labeler um, and then we load them onto the labeler and then we unload them from the labeler before the rest of the bottling line, obviously. So. One of the things that got us started on this was the question of cans versus bottles in terms of what, what package delivers the, you know, the, the, the best beer, the freshest beer with the least amount of oxygen that's going to last the longest. 
Um, since you do both do bottling and canning, mm -hmm. can you give us a general idea of the pluses and minuses of both technologies? Sure. Um, there, you could do an hours-long podcast on <laughs> just just that alone. Um, for us, we used to do um, only draft and bottles here. Um, the cans deliver. Um, sort of a sustainability factor with them that, that we really like, uh, as well as an accessibility. Um, the idea of you can, you can take something out into nature uh, on a picnic, on a, you know, outside of your home, in your kitchen, in your living room, um, or on your, on your patio or in your backyard, and if you drop the package, it's not gonna create a hazard for people and animals, um, i.e. broken glass. The, what you can do is very easily take a six-pack of beer on a backpacking trip. You can empty, drink those cans, crush those cans, throw them in the top of your pack, and hump them back out uh, and get them in a recycling container, and it's not that big of a deal. Um, the, I mean, that's surface level of why cans are better than bottles. They're also, um, you know, the empty weight of a bottle is, for a 12-ounce bottle, is far greater than the empty weight of a can. So the, um, just the fuel savings in um, moving those empty and full cans once from them coming to us and then us shipping them to retailers or to wholesalers and then from wholesalers to retailers, it's just a, a huge amount of weight that uh, gets sort of um, moved by using gasoline. So uh, the fuel savings there just across, it might not hit our pocket directly, but it's less fuel that's being used in the world. And in terms of the beer itself, are both they both give you the same quality? And, and, and you know, uh, I guess also there's the question of the, the way you describe the crimping on the can seems yeah. more, you know, that seems like it's never going to leak, whereas, you know, bottle caps may leak. Or do you have any, is there any... Yeah. Any quality difference between the two packages? Sure. Um, the the closure on a can is much greater. It's it's, it's uh, much more effective um, because of the rolling and the crimping action of the can. Uh, it's a really really amazing barrier for oxygen um, to uh, make its way into the package. Uh, the closure on a bottle is is a lot less secure. Um, it's easily damaged uh, if you knock the top top of a bottle cap or crown um, with the bottom of another bottle you can create a little dimple that is going to allow oxygen in um, and it's uh, much more durable with a can uh, light is a big issue i can go out i can take a really hoppy um, high hop load ipa um, in a can out into the sun and sit there and drink it and have no issues whatsoever it'll taste exactly the same as long as i'm drinking it out of the can um, if I do that with a bottle, even if it's uh, amber brown glass, uh, you're going to notice uh, that that old familiar skunky aroma start to rear its head after you know as little as five minutes out in the sun with an IPA. Um, so obviously not an issue there, quality-wise with cans. Definitely a problem with bottles. Um, and then you know a lot of that, um, a lot of the the rest of the benefits of the canning line um, are purely up to the sophistication of the equipment and uh, the brewery using that equipment. So you can damage a beer just as fast bottling it as you can canning it if you don't know what you're doing or you're not paying attention or you just don't care. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of surface area and foaming and uh, the ability to keep carbonation in or knock carbonation out of a beer um, depending on, on the equipment. I think for the bulk of the equipment that most breweries have in the United States. Um, you know, I, I don't want to call out any, any brands or anything, but um, there's a couple manufacturers that provide canning and bottling equipment. Um, and largely, they're all used the same way. Um, and so I think it's, it is very easy to damage beer. Um, it's very hard to keep beer exactly how you want it, all the way into the packaging process and getting it to consumers. Um, the we've noticed differences in flavor and aroma in bottled and canned products. We do taste panel every week on everything that was packaged that week, um, and there are differences. They're not necessarily better or worse, but uh, carbonation levels change. Um, if everything else is the same, carbonation will change just depending on canning or bottling. Um, they're both 
uh, both our bottling line and our canning line are filled uh, counter pressure or under pressure. Um, they're seamed very quickly after, uh, seamed or crowned very quickly after filling. Um, but there's little noticeable differences in both of those things. And um, one may long-term, uh, you know, over our kind of ideal 90-day window, you might notice a difference. Uh, and largely it depends on who's handling the beer, how they are handling the beer. We have uh, specifications for um, DOs or dissolved oxygen, uh, packaged airs, all those things. And um, we really, we seek to stay within those targets just for the, for the integrity of the beer itself. Um, and that's, that's something that we chase here very, very hard, very well, I think. Uh, just a couple of uh, businessy questions. Is there a yeah. big cost difference in terms of uh, cans versus bottles um, themselves and also the bottling lines? Sure. Um, again, it sort of goes back to what bottling line and what canning line you're talking about. Um, our canning line uh, that we currently use is a lot more expensive than um, the canning line that we used to use. Uh -huh. uh, we moved towards it for variety of reasons, consistency being the main one, yeah. um, and we definitely paid for that consistency, but we were happy with what it what it got us on the other side of that. Um, bottling lines, you can you can make the same argument depending on who you're sourcing from. Um, does it pay for itself? Yeah, probably over a long enough or sometimes short enough uh, span, depending on how much beer you're, you're packaging. Um, cans and bottles, uh, it, you know, you can, you can change that number depending on how much you're buying at any one time. Uh, for us, a can costs somewhere between uh, 9 and 11 cents per, per can. Uh, and that's just the body, that's not the, the, the end, they're called. Um, and then depending, you know, we can, we can adjust that price a little bit depending on a lot of factors. Right. Uh, bottles, we don't buy very many bottles compared to cans, unit, unit per unit. So they're definitely more expensive. but there are breweries out there in the world that are buying thousands and thousands and thousands more bottles a week than we are, and I'm sure they see a similar package cost. If you're looking at uh, uh, comparable systems, uh, uh, you know, a nice bottling line versus a nice canning line, yeah. um, are they roughly the same price? Like if you're if you're doing an apples to apples comparison, I couldn't confidently speak to that. I I wish I could, but I'm not shopping for a really nice bottling line right now and I'm really happy with our canning line as it is so yeah. um, somebody out there can can find that information yeah one for the listeners to weigh in on. yeah sure sure uh, sure I have a question on the other side of the market mm -hmm. so canning is still relatively new to the craft beer mm -hmm. market how do you think it's now uh, being accepted by customers just fine do you have any pushback from serving cans or sure um, I think from what we've seen here locally, there's definitely um, bottles still carry the perception of a premium product, whereas cans are still associated with the old, um, you know, if it's in a can, it's probably cheap. Um, now, I think that that is vastly different than it used to be, and I think that that's going away very quickly. Um, I think that in the last you know, five years ago, we were one of only a handful of, of breweries in Oregon canning, and now uh, I think that that is by far not the case. Their cans um, just went through a very accessible jump for a lot of breweries in town. Um, there are mobile canning lines, uh, all you know, several of them competing with each other, so the price is nice and low. Um, and then there are uh, several companies out now that are offering options for uh, low minimums on printed or sleeved cans. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a big hurdle, you know, when we order 25 pallets or when we order the printing run of one brand, it represents an incredible amount of money, um, which a lot of really small breweries don't have the ability to do. Um, and now there are companies out there shrink sleeving cans and you can get as little as I think 500 cans is a minimum that I saw, which is almost nothing. Right. Um, and you can have a have a brand with that kind of minimum. Um, it's it's very accessible, and you can have a mobile canner come in and do something. And uh, it's going to cost more money to do, but the frequency that you're going to see breweries um, sort of enter the can market, whatever that looks like, 
is, is incredible now. And I think what that does is that sort of lets the consumer know that if all of these breweries are behind canning, they feel good about it and uh, you can get really strong beers, really, you know, the perception of a premium beer in a can uh, is, is a normal thing. And I don't know, I don't believe that it's that case everywhere, but I think in Portland, uh, where we've got the, the huge number of breweries, um, the accessibility to mobile canning lines all over the place, uh, it really helps to shift the perception of the drinker um, in yeah, many other places. I don't believe that's the case yet, but it's going that way very quickly. So I want to go back to that thing that you said about how the the package affects the way the beer evolves in the package. Sure. And, you know, beer is a dynamic uh, liquid, and it changes depending on a whole bunch of factors, how warm it is outside, how much it's shaken, and then the size and shape of the container. So I'm wondering, do you are, are you noticing you do 12 and 16-ounce cans, and then you do, uh, what are your what are your bottle sizes? Just 22-ounce bottles. 22s. So are you noticing, do you think, are you noticing when you're doing your tasting panel on these things, you're using uh, different packages. Uh, how do they evolve differently in the in the each one? I, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Yeah, um, the way that we the way that we fill the individual package, uh, we try to fill it with sort of the least amount of turbulence possible, um, and then after the fact, create. Um, a measurable amount of foam to displace the air that would be in the headspace of that package, whether it's a 12 ounce or 16 ounce can or a bottle. Um, the amount of surface area for each of those packages and the temperature difference really affects uh, the willingness of the beer to foam, I think. Um, and you know, that's, that's managed in a variety of ways by keeping the beer a little colder, a little warmer, um, over-carbonating or under-carbonating the beer, depending on the spec that we want uh, in the package, uh, in the consumer's hand. Um, but what we have is, when you have all these little variables, um, we tune each one for the package that it's going into, but you still have just sort of the result of the package itself, and I think that's where you're going. So I think that um, what we notice is that uh, the amount of turbulence that we have to create to get the amount of foam that we want so that we're capping on foam in a bottle is a little higher than it would be for cans. And so we knock out a tiny bit more CO2 or maybe the, the foam is surface area and things like to bond to or attach themselves to the surfaces of things through uh, you know, positive or negative charge like maybe hop oils or aroma compounds. Um, and so we notice a little bit of a softer roundness in our very hoppy, uh, hop-forward, aroma-wise products in bottles than we do cans. Mm. And when we do a taste panel on a Thursday here in the brewery, uh, in the morning with fresh palates, uh, no one's had their bagel yet, no one's had their fourth cup of coffee or hopefully first cup of coffee yet, and, and the palates are as tuned as they're going to be all week, um, we notice a slight difference between uh, bottles and cans if they were all packaged uh, 12 16 and 22 ounce bottles all packaged off of the same tank within a course of the same 24 hour period um, even if we adjust the carbonation level for cans and bottles we know we're going to lose a little bit more carbonation when we're bottling on our machine um, and so we'll bump up just a tiny bit more sometimes to try to steer that and we still notice a difference and I think it has to do with the turbulence of the creation of foam to purge the headspace of that package in order to get our within our specification that we're looking for. Uh, one more question I have on the beer side. Uh, some styles of beer require higher levels of carbonation. Right. Your uh, Bavarian vice beers and, and so right. on. Um, can are cans, uh, what, what, how, how well do they handle high carbonation? Or do you, do you have, is there a limit there? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a limit for any package. Uh, obviously, um, champagne from France has to be put in a very specific, very thick bottle, um, and it gets corked and caged because it needs to be able to deal with a very high pressure. Um, I think that's at the upper limit for what most people are used to seeing. And on the, the lower end of that, I think just a 12-ounce bottle um, coming off of the the old AB plant is probably the thinnest, uh, lowest pressure that you're gonna 
sort of see a package capable of holding, not necessarily whether that that pressure is there. Um, and what we see is, you know, there's sort of an upper end specification for pressure rating in bottles um, from our manufacturer that we order from. And with cans, just due to the nature of the seam itself um, on the can and the closure of that, it's capable of a higher pressure rating. Um, and each manufacturer is going to have their own specification. So um, we're happy with our, our carbonation level and our packages are uh, very safe and also normal. Um, we've definitely tested those, uh, whether on purpose or on accident, through various uh, ways. And cans, I can say, will hold an incredible amount of pressure without failing. And bottles, when they fail, tend to be sharp and potentially bloody. So uh, we don't encourage that. I think most homebrewers out there have probably had some experience, whether theirs or with a friend, with uh, bottle bombs. And um, very rarely, I have only seen pictures and experienced one time a can bomb. And you know, if there's some sharp metal, if it, hap if it exploded while you were holding it, I'm sure you would feel it, but um, there's not uh, glass shrapnel that's going everywhere. So uh, I don't want to speak directly to pressure because uh, every manufacturer has their own specification. Yeah, sure. And as long as the equipment is tuned and running the way that it's supposed to be, that, you know, every everything's great. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, Patrick. Any other questions? No, I'm good. I think I think all right. I think we're okay. good. Okay. We know everything about canning now. Actually, yeah. we don't. I'm sure we missed something, and our I'm sure listeners will let, they'll let us know. We can go on endlessly. If, if we could sum it all up in a 15-minute uh, conversation, I think there'd be a lot more people doing it really, really well. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, we would like to thank Trevor Bass at Hopworks Urban Brewing here in Portland, Oregon, for giving us this tour, and uh, we really appreciate learning more about canning. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in. It was great to uh, talk about sort of what canning and bottling looks like for us. Very cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So big thanks to Trevor Bass for taking the time to uh, show us around their uh, canning line. By the way, just to give you sort of a mental picture, the canning line is reasonably compact. It probably takes a space that's about 20 feet wide by about 40 feet long. The whole thing, the whole, it's like a horseshoe as the cans come around. So, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't take a ton of space in the brewery, but they've got a, a pretty pretty sizable brewery down there. Yeah, and one thing we didn't talk about but that I know is when you order these cans, another big challenge with the canning line is, is they come in these giant pallets. So if you have a really tiny space and no warehouse space, it, yeah. it's really hard to manage. They don't weigh nothing, but they, don't, yeah, they, they take they, a lot of space. Yeah, so you got to have a place to put all those. But um, yeah, yeah, Trevor did a great job, man. That was He was so coherent, and that made it all sound really Yeah, it makes clear. us look smart. I know, he was very articulate, very linear in terms of his explanations, uh, and very precise. So thank you very much. And every time he described something sciencey, I noticed you nodding like you understood it. And I was like, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what you do. See, that's what you do in higher academia when you don't know what you're doing anyone's talking about is you just look, try to look really smart yeah. well in as a writer i found that it always helps to uh give a glassy-eyed stare that way they look at you and they think oh <laughs> and they, he's not getting it and, and they, they dumb they it down and start yeah uh, okay yeah see. yeah see that's if you if that happens to you in higher economics then you're dead right you don't want that <laughs> you just pretend you know and then i see and then try to try to switch the topic quickly it's all about incentives <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, I was particularly fascinated in uh, his talk at the very end about how it's now becoming accessible to small brewers that you can get these blank cans, you can do labels, uh, 500 cans, get a mobile, mobile canning line and bring it in. And I'll say at least locally, cans are now, it seems almost every month cans are starting to take up more and more and more of the shelf space in the craft beer aisle. Yeah, I think if you're buying, uh, uh, if you're looking in, at uh, the the four the four pack six pack, you know, not the twenty two thing, mm -hmm. it's now about half and half. It seems yeah. like there's as many cans as there are bottles at this point. Yeah, and I've really, as a consumer, it took me a while to get over that that can prejudice. I, and I flip the other way now. I always look for cans first. If I can buy cans, I'm way happier with cans. Yeah, so yeah, I, that's weird. what I was about to say. They're easier to handle, they're easier to store, they last longer, they're easier to carry around, as, as Trevor was mentioning. You can take them anywhere. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a complete can convert, a can enthusiast. Yeah, I think I find, I, I know that he says if you treat them right, then the, the product inside should be roughly equivalent, but I've, my, my 
anecdotal experience at least has been that the product I get from a can is uh, is on average better, fresher, uh, more well preserved. And I, that's my experience too. And I don't know if that's real or one of yeah. those impressions things, but it goes to show how we've shifted. We yeah. expect cans to be to deliver a fresher beer and so we experience it fresher so, so it's one of the fascinating things and I'd be, I'd be really interested to know from people out there uh, how cans are catching on uh, in your part of the world Yeah, uh, if that's something that's uh, uh, being adopted rapidly or if there's still a lot of uh, resistance to it Yeah. Okay. so Trevor uh, brought us uh, a very special beer to try as our third tasting, um, this is a one-off they're doing, uh, it's a beer uh, called You Will Only Live Once, Y-U-L-E um, and it's uh, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, thus uh, named because it's uh, a beer that they brewed specifically for the Holiday Ale Fest, which is a, a, a festival that takes place annually in Portland. Downtown in uh, what is known as Portland's Living Room, uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square, which is kind of ground zero. It's... It, it's sort of our Times Square. It's the it's the place that people go. It's the downtown yeah. downtown's heart. But it is a big open square block. Yeah. Uh, that's um, just a big plaza, a brick plaza that they've they've built, and they make this wonderful tent uh, that's got clear top. And and uh, Portland has a big giant Christmas tree that they uh, put in the square every year, and so you can look up and see the Christmas tree towering above, and all the lights that are blinking. And I find it quite actually delightful. Yeah, and it's, it's warm. It, and it's warmed in there. And dry. So it's, um, it's not quite as warm as it would be in a, in a room, but it is a lot warmer than it is outside. And it's comfortable, and yeah. it's dry, and it's, it's a nice time. And actually, the fact that it's not really warm is nice, because it gets really busy, and then you got a million people in there, and it gets warm. And you, you know, so you now, that, now, now that we've done the job for the Portland Tourism Board, yes. despite the fact that they're uh, harassing Old Town Brewing, uh, when is this festival, Jeff? The festival starts Wednesday, November 29th, and runs through uh, Sunday, December 3rd here in Portland, Oregon. Right. Holiday Ale Fest. Come down. Almost every beer that is served is uh, made for the festival. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll sell it at their own breweries, too. But if you want to try these beers, um, you go there. And that's kind of a specialty that they do. Uh, holiday beers. So they're big beers. They're Doppelbox. They're Imperial Stouts. They're spiced beers. So yeah. that kind of stuff. Barley wines. Yeah, so uh, make your reservations now. If you, if you reserve a hotel downtown, you'll be steps away from... From the festival. So this is called You Will Only Live Once. It's a 13.2% ABV uh, Imperial Dessert Beer, they call it. Uh, and so this is uh, one of these pastry beers that we've been starting to hear about. Yeah. and these Which are still kind of mysterious to us. They don't really exist in Oregon. No. The whole pastry stout thing is something we haven't really seen here. And I've already started to see blowback on social media, and I haven't even tasted one of these damn things. So yeah. it's like... Um, I've only become aware of them just recently in, yeah. in tweets and things. Uh, I didn't even know it was a thing. I, I, I Yeah, I was I was ignorant of it, too. I guess it's, it's an east one of these East Coast. The East Coast is really starting to eat our lunch in terms of uh, getting, <laughs> getting ahead of us on trends. Well, we'll find out whether it's a good trend or not, I suppose. That, so here's, here's how they describe it. It's an imperial dessert beer modeled after Panettone Italian Christmas cake, which I'm afraid I've never had, so I can't tell you how close they get. Yeah, based on the ingredients, I'm guessing it's one of those ones that's the, the Italian fruit cake. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's a strong ale, creamy and rich from lactose, with a plethora of dried cherries, apricots, prunes, raisins, and lemon zest. So that all speaks fruit cake to me. Yep. Uh, so... Uh, this is a, a beer that will be available uh, at the Holiday Ale Fest. By the way, um, this will be a one-ticket beer, so sometimes really big special beers require more tokens. Uh, this one does not. This one is a one-token beer. And at 13%, that's going to give you your alcohol units per, per ticket I would value. say bang for the buck is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> value for money. You cannot go wrong with this one. Yeah. Uh, and then it will be available post-fest at the, at the brew pub. Uh, all right, so let's let's give it a try. It really does smell like a fruitcake. Wow, yeah, it sure uh, does. I don't sort know any candied fruit. Yeah, the candied fruit and also the alk the booze. So English fruitcakes, the way you make them is you like you soak them in booze. Soak them in rum, yeah. Yeah, and uh, like let them age and and uh, they get they get can- that candied fruit smell and the booze commingling a smell that's very much like coming off the top of this glass. So uh, Trevor described. The, the challenge of these beers and, and this is exactly what I would think which is the challenge is you can make a really sweet beer uh, that's easy and you can make a really alcohol beer 
both are easy, but to try to make an, a, a balance of a sweet alcohol beer that's not objectionable is a high alcohol beer that's not objectionable is a is a trick. So let's let's try. You're nodding, so I suspect you think they've pulled it off. Well, I'll confess that the entire idea of this beer gave me great pause. Wow. Uh, it's nowhere near as sweet as I expected. No, nor nor as boozy as as your nose would suggest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it clearly is boozy, but it's not hot. That is so much like a dessert, you know, a, a dessert wine or like a, a port or something. Or, or yeah, yeah, or yeah. A, an after dinner aperitif, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's practically away from beer now. Mm-hmm. I should it's, say there's almost no carbonation. Yeah, I was going to say it's very low carb, which I think is appropriate for right. this. Um, it they model it on an on an Italian thing. It really it really seems like it comes from the English school to me. This tastes like something I would think of an old English yeah. kind of beer. Yeah, I understand entirely. Maybe, yeah. Well, this is this is quite good. It's I have almost, to say. Yeah. It's not the kind of beer that I would want very much of, uh, and it's the kind of beer that I was really skeptical of, but I have to say, I was gonna say every hat, <laughs> yeah, hats off. I will, I will, <laughs> I was going to say exactly <laughs> the same thing, which is everything I heard about the I was prepared not to like this at all, and the whole entire endeavor of these yeah, pa- pastry beers yeah, just pastry sound, beer. sounded terrible to me. Uh, but this is, actually, this is actually a really nice beer, and, and in a small serving, after dinner, it would be delightful. Yeah, you wouldn't want a lot of a 13% beer anyway. Uh, but this is actually not cloying. Um, the thing that kills these big beers is the clo- they get, they're, they're very heavy and they're very cloying. This yeah. is a thinner body and weirdly uh, dry despite all the fruitiness in the palate. So yeah, I mean, quite honestly, serve this in a sherry glass with your dessert is perfect. Totally. Perfect. Delightful. It is boozy, though. I can. It's, it's already, I've had like three, three sips and I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm. It's got some booze in it. So. It sure does. I've had about five sips now, which tells you how, how much I'm liking it. Yeah. Well, <coughs> all right. So if you live in Portland, uh, you can go to the fest. They'll have some after the fest here as well. Yeah. So uh, as, as most of the breweries who bring beer, they'll probably get them at, the, at their brewery. So if you like one you, uh, down there, you can go find the beer at the brewery. Yeah. He said, yeah. Trevor told us after the fest to be here. Okay. So uh, cheers. Hot cheers. Course. That's, that's, that's let's nice. Call, let's call that our Sherpa for the week. How's that sound? Oh, that's good because we didn't have a Sherpa for yeah. a week. So, look at you. I know. You're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a mailbag. You'll uh, you'll only live once. You'll I, I, only live once. I almost called it you'll you'll love it, which was been wrong. You'll only live once. Yeah. But you'll you'll also love it. So, all right. All right. Okay. So uh, that's our Sherpa for the week. Go to the holiday. Well, Holiday Ale Fest is kind of a Sherpa. It's a thing that you should do. You should do. We yeah. recommend it. Yeah. Uh, there are. There are many fests now, but this is one of the true classics, I think. That's right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, try that beer when you get there. Okay, uh, so now we have uh, a mailbag entry, and I'll let you, uh, you take it from here. All right, the mailbag comes from Sean from Boston, who listened to our uh, New England IPA podcast. Right. And he was, he was let's just say he was underwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, he said, he starts out by saying, uh, being a Boston native and growing up three minutes from Night Shift in Everett, which is near Boston, Night Shift was one of the beers we had. Yeah. Uh, it, then he went on to uh, talk about how we were imbeciles and didn't know anything about uh, New England IPAs, which is really true. I mean, I, we, we know what, we, we brought them back so we could learn about them. Right. That, that was the whole point of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, pretend to be an expert in New England IPAs at all. Right. So he concludes that section with, it is a style you have to be around and have a history with to fully understand uh, the passion and diversity behind it. And I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And uh, we did as, as good as a couple of Portland, Oregon guys can do. Uh, but then uh, the more amusing part comes next. And I'm going to read this verbatim because it really cracked me up. Uh, if you're going to have a podcast uh, and state that you're a beer expert, maybe you should do some more research and have all your information accurate. And please, for the love of God, stop with all this stupid background crap not exactly the word he used. Uh, that's right. We ticked that box on iTunes. So that's then. right. Uh, it would be a safe assumption to say no one tunes in to listen to you and Patrick drone on about your travels or kids or the really? weather or noises outside. Really? I, I get that you're trying to keep it loose, but there is a limit. Uh, try to be just a bit more professional and dress the topic at hand. Okay. First off, I just want to state for the record, I am not a professional at beer. <laughs> <laughs> so this is all you, baby. Yeah, and I guess I'm kind of a professional, but um, I only play one on a podcast. Yeah. Actually, we had a little discussion about this before, and uh, 
the, the, the banter we do so we do this at, for fun as a hobby we hope you enjoy it if you don't fine right uh, uh, but uh, I would like you to enjoy it if you like our personalities and if you don't like our personalities you probably won't and that's fine that's like, right there's a million not, podcasts like, yeah there's a million podcasts there's a million beers you find the ones you like um, so uh, uh, th- but thanks for the comments uh, it, we do draw on about the weather a little too much probably but other than that that's right and, we, and it is a good reminder sometimes we entertain ourselves too much and so it's good to have infrequent reminders that we can keep it on you know keep, keep on focus while not diluting uh, the delightful uh, quality of, of, of our banter um, <laughs> such as it is <laughs> and we love feedback good and yeah, bad we that's right it, we want it all we've heard some very technical stuff about our levels and yes it's all true I'm pretty bad at this stuff and I do my best but it's not very good uh, and I'm sure this podcast with all the ambient noise is going to be less than ideal too but uh, we're glad that you're listening and we hope you enjoy it Yes, and um, yeah, good pl- great place to end it. So, uh, uh, thank you, Sean, for, for your input. I That's do, right. I we do will, appreciate it. And we I will hope, try to be... Uh, I hope that you can out. overcome um, our banter and, and enjoy what we have to say. Um, yeah. All right, so... Uh, that's about it. That's about it. So I want to thank... Bam, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah, I want to thank Trevor here at uh, Hopworks Urban, Urban Brewery. By the way, you kept saying Hopworks Urban Brewing, but it's Urban Brewery, technically. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Uh, thank you for hosting us. Thank you for this delightful beer, uh, spending time with us, telling us about packaging. Uh, for those of you out there, if you have any more questions, uh, Trevor's happy to follow up. So if you have any specific questions about, uh, about packaging and... Uh, packaging lines and those kinds of decisions uh, let us know we can try to follow up for you uh, hopefully we've um, done a decent job yeah and Trevor did a great job so yeah. um, but often um, you get more questions when you hear something like that so yeah. definitely send them to us but we do love comments and que- uh, we lo- do love comments questions and suggestions so uh, a few words about how to get in touch uh, you can uh, see Jeff uh, read Jeff's blog at uh, the Beervana blog he also tweets at Birvana. If you want to uh, contact us, uh, email Jeff at jeff at beervanablog.com or go to the Beervana Blog Facebook page and leave a comment there. That's right. And the Facebook page has started to pick up in terms of um, just interesting stuff. Other people are posting on it. News is flying by. So check that out if you're interested. Uh, you can also find Patrick tweeting at, uh, at sorry, yeah, Beeronomics. Yep. Um, and that is really where a lot of the the, the stuff we learn about is happening is on, on Twitter, so that's yeah. a good place to find it. By the us. way, uh, someone someone uh, reached out to me through Twitter. Apparently there is a new book called Beeronomics, written by a couple of other authors, and they wanted to know whether I had anything to do with it. I have nothing to do with it. I got no royalties, uh, but unlike the city of Portland, I am happy to share the Beeronomics name. Every, <laughs> take it, use it, however you want. It's a, it's a open resource. It's... Uh, public access. Yeah. Use it, but don't misuse it, let's say. Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. Uh, so, yeah, do be in touch. And until then, uh, let's... I'm going to... I got three beers here. I'm going to pick up the new IPA from Hopworks. I'm going to do the You'll Only Live Once. All right. I really want to call it You'll Love It. So, Jeff, before we cheers, uh, this is good because we finally get to tick off one of these things that we've been talking about forever. That's that right. It was water and packaging. We've done packaging, so... Look che- for water. Look eventually. for to water. Water is going to be a big one. Water is going to be the <laughs> bestseller. A uh, big hit. Okay. Uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.